You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 17th of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, a rebellion at Google against alleged plans to launch a custom limited search engine for China. My guests, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Augustin Machalari and Paige Reynolds will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the proposed sale of New York Magazine and what it means for the idea of a dedicated city journal, the backlash against the overly hasty rebuilding of Beirut and... Due warning that there'll be more where that came from as we contemplate our favourite summer one-hit wonders. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Paige Reynolds, Augustin Machalari, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Welcome all. And first of all, to Google, where there is a measure of trouble at mill. More than a thousand employees of the search engine have signed a petition protesting at alleged plans to launch a customised, which is to say censored, version of Google in China. The platform is said to be going by the working title of Dragonfly and is presumably being tailored to conform to China's restrictions on web use. Google, in its regular form, is banned in China, as are Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, which may explain why China is getting so much done. Um, Augustine, first of all, uh, should Google uh, be obliged to lock themselves out of what is obviously going to be a huge market uh, on a point of principle? Yes, I think they should. Whether or not they will uh, is doubtful, I think. But uh, it's their own standards that they're holding themselves to. This is the point the employees are making, yes. Right. They pulled out eight years ago uh, because they found that China was uh, compromising what what, what integrity they were trying to maintain. Their slogan is, don't be evil. Easy to forget that China is pretty undemocratic a place. It's a tactful way of putting it, but yes, we'll go with undemocratic. (laughs) We'll go with that. And whether they should just go in and operate according to the principles uh, set by them, by the Chinese state or not, well, they just shouldn't. But I wonder if they would make a difference actually going to China, respecting, you know, the web usage in a way. And I, I think actually I, I don't mind Google going uh, to China in a way. My only problem, my only issue here, I don't think they will be successful there because you know the Chinese they do like their very own social media websites, they also their own search engines. You know, I mean Google can give it a go if they want to, in my opinion. I think there's quite a big difference though between respecting local customs and getting a sort of American tech giant to give credence to the suppression of like the free flow of information on kind of everything from human rights abuses to cultural and the political history of the country, freedom of thought, religion. I really think that Google should not continue with its plans. And like Augustine was saying, the fact they pulled out eight years ago because they found that there were Chinese hackers trying to get into the Gmail accounts of human rights workers 
and they're trying to tiptoe back in. I, th- I think it's very hypocritical. So I, I genuinely don't know what I think about this, which is always the most interesting sort of story. I think it is clear that the that tech giants are an entirely new form of company. Uh, they're, they're trading in, in information, both general information and personal information, in a way that previous multinationals haven't. And and because all multinational corporations adjust at some level to local conditions. But I'll, I'll just to follow that up, Paige, is it different when it's information that you're trafficking in? Yeah, I think it is different. And I think particularly um, the fact that Google... In its very nature, it's it was set up to facilitate the free flow of information. I think it's a massive hypocrisy to to, to compromise on that. But even here in the West, we have some so many restrictions, not as much as China in a way. But even here in the UK, there's you know severe you know privacy laws. I know it's a completely different. I'm not comparing. I think what China is doing is completely awful. But but there's always some sort of restriction in some way or another. So I wonder. I I, I am in favor of kind of companies, Western companies interacting in the Chinese market. I think that's how things change. Uh, you know, it, it's going to be hard then for. Um, uh, for Google, uh, it, it is a very difficult question and, and involves morals and everything, but I don't see a problem. But th- this, is this akin, and I'll, I'll put this to you, Augustine, to the, the, the ongoing and recurrent row between social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, which keep running up against European countries, which have laws uh, against Holocaust denial, uh, and that Facebook and Twitter keep being or allowing themselves to be used as a platform for the dissemination thereof? Well, but they're not really, are they? I mean, now they're kind of throwing Holocaust deniers off their platforms. Not, they're well, nominally not, not, trying certainly to certainly not fast down enough that. for my liking. Perhaps not, but they are doing it. You have to also consider the vast, vast numbers of people. And yeah, there has been a reticence on the part of Zuckerberg and at Jack, whatever his whole name is, from Twitter, <laughs> to uh, meaningfully engage with a lot of the criticisms. But they are slowly facing up to their responsibilities. I mean, the issue with tech in China. I would argue, Faye, to go back to your earlier point and to agree with what Paige said, is essentially that like what they're building is one of the most sort of Orwellian, repressive, tech-backed surveillance states the world has ever seen. Are we talking about China or Google here? <laughs> well, you might ask. Um, you know, there are as many as a million Uyghur, apparently, are detained in concentration camps that no one has really heard about. They live under this state of extraordinary surveillance, which is facilitated by tech, which 20 years ago would have been completely sort of mind-bending William Gibson stuff, and which now is readily available. You know, you can buy a tiny little camera. We could buy one from wherever we liked. I don't have any good reason for knowing that. I just do. Um, (laughs) the, The point being that, you know, add a state with an inclination to behave in this way to the kind of processing power of a a company like Google or its parent Alphabet, and you have a recipe for a really bad time. Well, on that dystopian note, we will move along uh, somewhat to New York now, where the magazine of that name may shortly be up for sale. New York Magazine, founded in 1968, might find itself on the auction block along with other assets of its parent company, including the websites The Cut and Vulture. It is to be hoped, I think, that it finds a buyer, not just because New York is a reliably good read, but to keep alive the idea of a magazine both for and about a particular city. Um, Fernando, New York's actual current figures don't look at all rickety. Its current print distribution, it says here, is 408,000. Is there any reason at all why 
a magazine named after a city can't work not only in the city but but around the world no absolutely it's it's first of all i think new york is a classic title and i'm sure you'll continue existing in one way or another uh, i'm sure there'll be a buyer and as you say the circulation numbers they're not bad uh, i'm sure you know they might have some their own financial problems but i think it's so fantastic for a city to have a title that 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 embraces the city because even here in london i always you know there's very few places in london where you can buy new york but i think such a fantastic magazine makes me want to go to new york it's such a uh, in a way, it's almost like soft power for a city, in a way. Uh, and very few cities have that uh, these days, unfortunately. Even our our London here, we used to have Time Out. We still have it, but it, with diminished powers. You know, it's not what it used to be, in a way. Uh, we do still have Time Out after a fashion. I, d- I did used to work for Time Out for, for some while regularly. I, I, had a, I had a fortnightly column for Time Out for some while. That You can probably trace its decline from, from that moment, in fact. <laughs> Listen, when I moved to the UK in 2006, I used to buy every, ev- every week, you know. And, and remember, I used to buy... You know, there was a, I, I don't, a price I don't recall getting any letters from a certain F8 <laughs> Pacheco complaining when my column got canned. Because it was always excellent. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm, I hope it can work because I do like this idea in the same way. I've, I've always really liked metropolitan newspapers, especially traveling in America uh, and metropolitan magazines. But... Can it, Paige, I'll ask you this. Can it work from any city, especially if you're thinking about it around the world, selling it elsewhere? As Fernando points out, New York is not, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty unarguable masthead. Everybody knows what New York means. Everyone has an idea of it. Could, could you make a global thing out of a magazine named after any city? I don't think any city. I think that'd be quite a stretch. I mean, yeah, somewhere like New York, London, Tokyo, Paris. I think if you if you got the right format, I think you could definitely sell it, kind of as Faye was saying, as sort of a soft power tool. Um, unfortunately, we don't really have that in, in London. I was I was looking up um, in my research. Um, there is a magazine called The London Magazine, um, but again, it's quite it's a glossy mag. It's monthly. Um, it's mainly about property. Um, and then we also have a website called The Londonist. But unfortunately, just kind of as Time Out's format has changed, The Londonist also, the articles are quite... Uh, more like listicles, sort of like top five pretty doors you'd like to see around mm. London, or you know, <laughs> the best donuts. <laughs> the best and, and, and it feels like you're regurgitating the same information again and again. It, I think that a magazine might have much more global appeal if it actually took the time to go and profile the people that lived there, the people that worked there, and the people that kind of contribute to the city. I, I, I would enjoy reading that perhaps from any city. Because I guess the closest London currently has is the glossy magazine of the Evening Standard. But the the glossy magazine of the Evening Standard, like the Evening Standard as a whole, thinks everybody in London lives in Notting Hill and has three surnames. Don't they have shortlist? We've got shortlist as well, have we not? We do, but it's not really a a specifically London-focused, London-centred title. Andrew, I'm glad you mentioned ES Magazine because, uh, you know, the Evening Standard Magazine, because I have to say, it could, it could be having much better, but it's a very good buff read, I have to say, you know. It, <laughs> it's, it, it, I like it. I, I find it one of my guilty pleasures for the week. Fernando, Thanks we for mentioning. Uh, is one of the uh, Notting Hill demographics. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, we, we could do a separate segment on, on great bath reads. <laughs> on perhaps a future programme, Fernando, do add that to, to the list. Uh, does anybody present have a particular favourite City magazine that they currently read or have read at any point? What, was, there, was there a Sao Paulo one growing up? Uh, well, Sao Paulo used to have, you know, in the Friday papers, there's usually uh, very strong supplements, you know, which restaurants to go. And they were like in a magazine format, like you have here in the UK. But magazine itself, we had another one, Veja São Paulo. But may I say something for Paris? I mean, uh, Paris Match. I think, of course. in a way, it's kind of more of a newsy magazine, but it is very strongly connected to the city. But, you know, and, have... and it did do that thing of leveraging the city in which it was published into a global brand. Exactly. And and I think that's an example of, of you know, London would, would needs a Paris Match, in my opinion. Just to jump in, it occurs to me that the kind of culture of a city reflects both its need and what comes out in a kind of city-specific magazine. You were asking about a favourite one, and the only one that came to mind really to me was The New Yorker, which obviously Mm. balances really amazing, really carefully considered, uh, really well-funded, crucially, long-form articles um, with, with, with listings. And that kind of, you know, that kind of genre of of long-form journalism, that type of magazine is something which is, I think, probably in all of our minds, I would would imagine, typically American, and which in the UK there's a growing appetite for, but without necessarily a market to support meaningfully. You know, it's all well and good. We four in the studio having an interest in reading a 3,000 word long piece on something vaguely esoteric but even more so being commissioned to write one indeed (laughs) indeed indeed but you know how many people uh, does it take to really meaningfully fund that if if the writer is going to get a fair wage and 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 without that I I guess it kind of it does mean you know that 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 it's the listicle the, the website listicle that kind of comes to dominate the sort of the magazine landscape of the city in some way. It's interesting that Og mentioned listings. I think me and Paige were having a a pre-show conversation about that because even Time Out these days, there's no listings. I want my but, listings but, for cinema. But I, I who, need... would, who would go to a magazine for listings anymore? Though? <laughs> I do. I do. I mean, because... I do you, do you check them off in the bath? Is 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 this how you, you plan your week? Sometimes, yes. I think Fernando mentioned that he buys the Radio Times. I do. I mean, it's an excellent TV guide as well. And, and we've a hu- Youngest purchaser. <laughs> well, the circulation of things 584,000 every week. So they're still going kind of strong, maybe for a different demographic. But, you know, it's, uh, it's important, these things. Well, on that hopeful note for the Radio Times, uh, we are going to take a short break. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Augustin Machalari, Paige Reynolds and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. More shortly, including our favourite summer one-hit wonders. Monocle's entrepreneurial September issue is jam-packed with advice, wisdom and heartening tales of the folks around the world who are building better businesses. We meet the startups pursuing careers in everything from sharpening up the stationary business to surfers helping recycle ocean plastic and mull over why starting older is sometimes better for business. And if the working world isn't for you, well, then there's a career in the French Foreign Legion to consider. Elsewhere, we discuss the late Francisco Franco's next move, visit a seemly startup space in Provence, and bed down in a Danish residence par excellence. We also take you on a design-minded tour of a Tokyo restaurant opening that you may well have heard about, and talk trainers with the man behind New Balance. 
We also sip wine in Kefalonia before a last meal with the Beiruti cookbook author, Anissa Halou. The opportunity-filled September issue of Monocle is on all good newsstands now. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Augustin Machalari, Paige Reynolds and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And let's look now at Beirut. It is a city replete with historically significant ruins. Indeed, as PJ O'Rourke wrote, when visiting in the 1980s, they block most streets. While the city has been tidied up and substantially rebuilt since the Lebanese civil war of that period, the cost has been substantial to Beirut's older architectural heritage. As detailed in issue two of Monocle's summer weekly newspaper on sale now about-ish. Seamless plug there. There are the beginnings of a backlash by Lebanese historians and archaeologists. Um, I've been to Beirut a few times. It's one of my very favourite cities anywhere in the world. It's an absolute hoot and I recommend to anybody who hasn't been that they go as soon as they can. But I, I kind of sympathise to... and I'm sympathising with some awful people today. I sympathise to an extent... Uh, with the developers and the rebuilders. Um, Paige, I will ask you first, because there's not a lot of room. If you're going to rebuild Beirut, you are going to end up building on top of stuff. How how do you decide what we must preserve for future generations and what we can just build bulldoze and build a shopping centre on? Yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting debate. And I think that often when we're talking about preservation and conservation, um, we're thinking about preserving for future generations mm. and there's perhaps not a lot of thought about the contemporary generation and the people presently living there um, particularly when you're looking at uh, somewhere like Lebanon um, which is uh, exiting a, a big conflict about sort of 25 years ago um, so you have a, a kind of different priorities there I think unfortunately in the case of, of Lebanon the development that has happened seemingly it's not serving or servicing uh, the communities very well so there are historical sites that aren't being used to build affordable homes or parks or schools or hospitals, but they're being used for for multi-million pound flats, which don't service the people um, currently living there. So I think, yes, you've got to think about the community presently there, but developers have to make sure they engage with that community a lot more so seemingly than than's happening in Lebanon currently. Fernando, what do you think? How do you play this? You, if you're presented with Beirut circa the end of the civil war I get in, in, in the late 80s, you're talking about a city which is a more or less total ruin. Um, it, obviously, you need to rebuild, you need to try and house people, you need to revive life there. Do you stop to worry about the foundations of a 2,000-year-old chariot racetrack or not? Well, the problem here in Lebanon, from you know, especially from this article from the writer Habib Bata, is that I think uh, the Lebanese politicians they, or, and developers, they didn't actually consult you know, archaeologists and historians about that. They did there, not. Th- there's a need for that as well, because I, I agree, I think it's impossible to preserve everything. You know, I'm not saying, oh, let's leave it the way it is that that would be foolish as well but this there needs to be a discussion and I, and I think they, they are trying some people in Lebanon are trying to do that in a way and see you know which one would be more relevant especially for tourism because this could bring more money to the country uh, via tourism for example as well so I think this if we do more consultations like this they'll be extremely helpful uh, Augustine, do you do you have sympathies whatsoever with the people who have rebuilt Beirut in what some suggest is undue haste 
Well, I think what's interesting about heritage is that um, it's easy from the UK to think of it as this kind of universal human virtue. Mm. Uh, and I don't think that that imperative uh, holds strong, you know, uh, elsewhere in other places around the world. Um, in the Far East, it, it has very different connotations because permanence and sort of uh, originality um, rather than kind of the recreation are... Are less significant than they are, for example, in the in the UK, where we where we kind of deify and fetishize these things, which are real artifacts from the past. Um, in Beirut, you know, it's worrying to hear that they're not being these things aren't being covered up with uh, stuff that has some sort of social utility. Um, conversely, there are really interesting and really effective techniques for preserving these kind of ruins. I met someone once who uh, was advising me on where to go when I went to Lebanon. He told me to go and check out, you're going to hate me because I can't remember the exact name of it, but if you take the massive motorway out of town... Heading uh, in which direction? Heading, I think, towards Tripoli. There's a Tripoli in Lebanon. There is, north of Beirut. North of Beirut. You go out there under the big cable car, kind of out that way. Annoyingly, you, we are now discussing a part of Lebanon I have not visited. <laughs> so you can say anything and we'd all have to believe you. Anyway, on the way out, you come under a big tunnel and on the right-hand side, there are these um, carvings on the cliff edge and these carvings go all the way back to like the Egyptians and it's the, um, relic, the, the carvings left behind by every invading army all the way up to the Second World War and it's quite bonkers. It's like these kind of like hieroglyphics, different sigils, all of these people saying we came, we saw, we conquered, <laughs> making their mark. And now it's on the edge of this busy motorway. And on the one hand, you're like, wow, this is a really important sort of thing of culturally significant thing. And on the other hand, it's like, well, you know, people need to get from A to B. And so what people have done is, is scan them. You know, there's these amazing kind of modeling projects. People are scanning uh, relics in order to preserve them digitally. And it's not quite the same. But then I guess it depends by whose standards you're sort of assessing it. Yeah, I mean, you, you notice a massively different, I mean, I guess the opposite extreme to the English attitude or British attitude that you're describing is if you go somewhere like China, and with the exception of if you go to Beijing, apart from the Forbidden City in Tiananmen Square, almost nothing in Beijing was there 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I read this fantastically interesting article on um, Eon, which described uh, a temple in, in Japan, which is 2000 years old, except it isn't because part of the process of worship that it exists to serve is that it gets fully destroyed and fully rebuilt every two years. So on the one hand, you have this um, ancient thing that people go and wonder at. And on the other hand, it's all brand new. It's the, the temple equivalent of that philosophical conundrum about the axe, isn't it? If you've replaced the handle five times and the blade six times, is it still the same axe? Quite. Um, on that uh, note, uh, we will proceed to our final item. Uh, it is still more or less summer, uh, and where popular song is concerned, summer is distinguished by being a season marginally more propitious for dreadful pop music than any of the others. In what I assume to be an item shoehorned into the running order by Fernando to plug his piece on One Hit Wonders in issue three of our summer <laughs> newspaper, everyone here, apart from me, I cannot help but notice Fernando, no one asked me, has been asked to pick their favourite One Hit Wonders. Uh, we have clips of each. Listeners, of nervous disposition are encouraged to exercise discretion. Uh, Fernando, this is all your idea slash fault, so you go first. Uh, what is your favourite summer one-hit wonder? Well, I do love a one-hit wonder, I have to say. You but do, this is true. Shall we hear it and then you, you take your opinions on what you think? Well, what, yeah, okay, we'll hear it first and then you can explain yes, yourself afterwards. Absolutely. Okay, fine. Boys, 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 
Fernando's choice of his favorite <laughs> summer one-hit wonder. Sabrina Salerno, Boy, Summertime Love. Yes. It does have a lot of things that I like. Simple lyrics, a kind of Italo disco beat, cocktails, inflatable swimming pool toys. I'm glad you said something else after inflatable boys. there. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, yes. <laughs> I do, yeah. But it's just a fantastic hit from 1987. And again, we were discussing this. I mean, she's not exactly one hit one. I mean, she did have some follow-up hits like Yeah Yeah and Yo-Yo. But, you know. Yes, astonishing, Fernando, that those have receded from the popular memory. I I do recall the video associated with that song getting quite a lot of play on Australian television for some reason. It's very colourful. That was the reason, I'm I'm sure, Fernando. It was was the colours that attracted the directors of our our pop video programmes. (sighs) <sighs> and, and, and it was pre, you know, these days everybody has a unicorn on their, on their swimming pool or something like that. At that time, she already had it. on their swimming pool? Yeah, an inflatable unicorn or a pineapple or whatever. Swan yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. It's all the rage, Andrew. It's so, all the rage. So just so, to be, so, so, so well. our listeners are clear on this, you all have inflatable animals in your swimming pools? Of course. If I had one, yes, absolutely. <laughs> you don't have a swimming pool? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> um... <laughs> I, I fear that we are deviating from the point somewhat. That 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 was Fernando's pick. It can it can surely, at the risk of tempting fate, only be uphill from here. Um, a page. What 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 have you chosen? Your your favourite one hit wonder. Um, again, I'd I'd quite like to hear it first because I th- <sighs> I think people will they'll hear it and be like that song. You know? Yeah, they, that may well be the reaction, though not necessarily in the context that you're <laughs> hoping for. Uh, this is Page's choice. When I stop and stare, don't worry me Cause I'm feeling for her, what she's feeling for me I can try to pretend, I can try to forget But it's driving me mad, going out of my So for those few listeners that don't know what that song is, um, that's All the Things She Said. By, by Tattoo. By Tattoo, exactly, which, Andrew. Which, 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 for again, for reasons, I imag- I remember also being a hit, a favourite with uh, pop video programmers for some reason. Yeah, I was saying <laughs> earlier that there's just, there's this sort of weird element of irony that I'm pretty sure that video was sort of my first um, on-stage same-sex relationship um, exposure and it's by a by a Russian duo so I don't I don't really know what else to say about that but it's were tattoo really one hit wonders there were other hits or hits ish I mean I'm yeah, not sure I, I, I could not name any of them if you held a gun to my head but there were others weren't there yeah there were they're, they're more a number one hit wonder is, is how I argued it um, earlier <laughs> but um this song also um, when I was in Russia obviously they, they did a lot of Russian language as well um, so I, I remember I was sort of forced to to learn it in, in, in its Russian in its Russian lyrics. So. Does it mean something completely different? It actually in does. The lyrics in Russian are <laughs> which is I've lost my mind, I need her, which is totally different. Um, same sentiment, but completely different words. Kind of. Um, Augustine. Um, mine is the Cheeky Girls. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
See, the, the, the thing the thing is, at this point, I I, I just would have gone, yeah, fine, no. whatever. This this show's gone to the dogs anyway. Like, um, I'm worried that the uh, '90s born people in this studio are giving it quite an emo edge. Um, but if you want to listen to mine, it's uh, Butterfly by the band Crazy Town. Okay, it goes like this. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady, you're my butterfly, sugar, baby. Come, my lady, come, come, my lady, you're my butterfly, sugar, baby. Such a sexy, sexy, pretty little thing. This little bitch, you got me sprung with your tongue ring. And I ain't gonna lie, cause your loving gets me high. So to keep you by my side, there's nothing that I won't try. Butterflies in her eyes and her looks to kill. Time is passing, I'm asking, could this be real? <laughs> See, I, I confess, Augustine, that Crazy Town rather passed me by at the time. I may have gone to the shops or something. Uh, who, who are they? Are um, they? I will just say that that, that song was uh, called one of the greatest rap metal uh, crossover hits. Low bar. It's a ever, certified ever. banger. It's um, amazing. Reached number one in 15 countries, that song. Crazy Town were uh, composed primarily of uh, the two great MCs, Shifty Shellshock. And of course. Epic Mazur. Shifty, unfortunately, um, has spent most of the decades since that came out in 2000 in uh, rehab. So we wish Shifty all the best. Um, Epic has left Crazy Town because <laughs> I guess he's, he's sick of Shifty's um, problems. 24th most awesomely bad song ever that was found by VH1. 24th most awesomely bad song. It's not bad. Didn't find out what number one was. Don't what, was 20, what was 23rd is Indeed. what interests me more. Tattoo. Um, <laughs> Andrew, we can't let this bit finish without you giving I, us well, a I, one I, hit. Well, I, I was wonder. trying to think of one, and I've got about five seconds to talk about it. Um, it is a song I have mentioned in this spot, I think, before, and it's just it was a summer number one hit. I think it is a genuine pop smash, uh, and I can't recall any other hits they had, which was Groovies in the Heart by D-Light. But when it came out, when I was backpacking around Italy, um, it took me years to want to listen to it again because after six weeks in Italy, I was just thinking, does nobody in this country own any other records? Yeah. Just every shop, restaurant, bar you walked into, there it was. You're a very classy man, Andrew, because it's a fantastic song. <laughs> I, 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 I do my best. Fernando, thank you. Uh, thank that you. does bring us to the end of today's show. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Paige Reynolds and Augusta Machilari, thank you for joining us. Fernando produced the show. It was researched by Julia Webster. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 Monday. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend. Hold up. 